You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is Jillian Johnsrud, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. I will never forget the first time I met Jillian Johnsrud. We were at FinCon, a digital marketing event for personal finance creators. I rolled out of bed one morning and stumbled into a talk half hungover, parched, and agonizingly hungry. As I felt my mind and body go woozy, there was Jillian, handing out breakfast bars to all the conference newbies who looked as green as me. I can think of very few people as truly lovely as Jillian. Yet as a content creator, she is barraged almost daily with an onslaught of online opinions. And let me tell you, some of them are not so kind. You know what I was told when I was a new content creator? You know you're making an impact when the haters start to show up. And isn't that the same thing with the rest of our lives? But how do we deal with all that bad juju and yet continue to grow and create? How do we fire the haters? Jillian Johnsrud is a writer, speaker, and coach. She is the creator of the Everyday Courage podcast, and her new book is titled Fire the Haters, Finding Courage to Create Online in a Critical World. Jillian, welcome back to Earn and Invest. I want to point to a recent Facebook post that you just put out there. You said, after a year-long break from Facebook, I'm back. Anything interesting happened in the past 12 months? Talk to me a little bit about your Facebook break. Why did you take it? Honestly, it was because I was on Facebook too much. And it was adding to, yeah, it was just, it was a really tough distraction. I had tried to like create better boundaries, which is something I talk about in the book, that you have to create the boundaries that work for you. And I was having a hard time sticking to my own boundaries. So I said, okay, I'm just going to take a break. And I planned to take a break for a week. And I thought, I'll just come in and I'll check in like once a week. And then week after week went by and I happily didn't come back. And so now I feel like, yeah, I think I'm I think I'm ready. Like there's things that I miss. And so I think giving yourself an opportunity to miss the platform, to miss the good that it brings is, is a helpful reset. Let's talk about the good and the bad. Obviously, when you put something out there and you get these great comments, it feels really good. Talk to me about Maybe your most memorable positive and negative comment, either on a blog post or social media, something that really sticks in your mind. I think the things that are actually the most 
impactful is when I meet people in person that have been following my work online, because then you get kind of the, the, the big unfiltered emotion. I heard a story uh, in the book about when we were actually at economy and we were all kind of milling about the front of the stage. And I saw someone making a beeline and I could just tell by the look on her face. Oh, there was lots of big feelings. <laughs> it was just a lot. <laughs> and it just, it all comes out and it's such I love those interactions because it's so memorable for the person. Like if you've ever gone up to someone that you knew online, but have never met in person, that you feel like their work significantly changed your life. There's so many interactions that we forget, but we never forget those. And the negative comments, I mean, I probably haven't read the worst of them. I don't read comments from news articles. Generally, sometimes my husband does, but even then I'm like, you got to filter this. Like, you can't just tell me everything, but it's all across the board. It's amazing how upset people can get over not just my work, but my life and my choices. And I even, I posted something on Twitter and it was the first time this has happened on Twitter. I posted something about a personal choice I had made. So it wasn't like an opinion for everyone, like something I actually did in my life. And over half of the retweets were people just disgusted and Mm. angry and upset. Like I never had so many angry retweets and, and it's okay. I think if we're going to create online, we're going to share this. There can't be the expectation that everyone will understand that everyone will agree, that everyone will assume the right intention. Other people have to have the freedom to kind of have their own opinions and their ideas, even if I, you know, don't like them or would prefer they have a different opinion. You use a quote in your introduction from John Shedd. You say, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Hearing about some of the negative reactions, it begs the question a little bit, why keep putting content out there? I think this is kind of a humanity question. And I think it's core to to who we are as people, to create, to have ideas, to have stories, to share our experience, to share our inspiration, our personality, and hopefully that work And this, by work, it could be a Facebook post, it could be a tweet, you know, anything that you're putting out there, hopefully it does great things and it interacts with that audience and it's, it's a positive thing, but you can't control those outcomes. So a negative outcome doesn't mean that there wasn't also a positive outcome. You know, you put one thing out there and it's interacting with hundreds or thousands of people, each of them having their own unique experience with the work you created. Yeah, we talk a lot about content creators and putting their content out there. But in a lot of ways, this is true for just your everyday person yeah. who's putting up a Facebook post, or even as you and I have talked about recently, someone who's just making life choices, even if you're not putting it out there on social media, just the act of making life choices and decisions is going to ultimately get comments. Do you think our social media world of today has made things different? Like when did the environment get so bad? When did the internet get so mean? (laughs) 
think it's it's inherent in the medium. It's a different medium to type something than it is to say it to a person. You know, because 70% of our communication is nonverbal. And so in those in-person interactions, like you can gauge the other person's response and kind of adjust course if you're obviously hurting their feelings, if you're offending them, and this is, you know, your friends or your family, you kind of adjust course. But when you just write stuff online and you miss out on all that nonverbal communication, it's so easy to be hurtful or judgmental or to have opinions where nobody asked for your opinion. You know, I've, I've even seen commenters, you know, someone will post something and, and say like, I'm not looking for opinions. I don't need advice. <laughs> and people will literally say, if you put it online, I have the right to give you advice. If you put it online, like I have the right to say whatever I want. We're not all sharing the same rule book is part of the problem. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. We're not sharing the same rule book. I saw you say something to the extent of the internet is essential, yet seemingly dangerous. What did you mean by that? For creatives, for small businesses, for entrepreneurs, from anyone from a writer to you're making like custom birdhouses. If you're trying to find your audience, if you're trying to find fans, if you're trying to find customers, it's really tough to do. If you have no online presence, you don't have a Facebook page, you don't have social media, you don't have a website, like you just, you're dark. Like if the only way someone can find you is they happen to walk by your shop. Like that's just not realistic. We have this incredible opportunity, but it feels a little dangerous because we are inviting, it feels, public opinion. And people have opinions on everything. They'll have opinions on your hours, on your location, on the paint color. Like I used to work uh, for a church and, and the joke was like, no matter what color the carpet is, someone's going to be angry. Like trying to select new carpet for a church is a battle. And like there is no unanimous, everyone loves this. And that's just transferred to this even larger platform online. I love this comparison with the church, because if you think of a church, you know, this is usually a group of people who've come together because they know each other or want to know each yeah. other. They're kind of from the same locale. There's some sense of community there. We love to feel in social media, we also have a community, but in a sense, the one of the powers of social media is that it really puts your content out there to the world, people who don't know you. And certainly that yeah. sometimes feels dangerous because they don't know you. They don't know that you were that really cool person handing out breakfast bars at FinCon yeah. when the rest of us were feeling bad. <laughs> they don't have that context. Yeah. And Another saying from church, which is always helpful for me to remember is where there's people, there's people problems. Anytime you gather a group of people, you're going to have people problems. And with the internet, we're just able to gather much larger groups of people than we ever were, you know, kind of just in our daily personal lives. So let's pivot to talking about the book specifically you talk about kind of the three challenges 
of navigating the internet. In fact, that's how you structured your book in those three subsections. Tell us a little bit about what those challenges are and why. So the first challenge we address is like just life online. The the trolls, the haters, the critics, you know, that's probably the first thing people think of when when they go to think of like should I share should I share this stuff online? Like, oh, what if people, what if, what if I get angry comments? Like, what if people don't understand? But it's also, you know, like I said, we don't have a common, a common rule book. So one of the chapters is you make a thing, you have to make the rules. If we're doing something online, like we have to decide what the rules are. And this is definitely true for creatives and entrepreneurs, but even your personal Facebook account that's your account. What are people allowed to comment? What are people allowed to say? Are they allowed to talk to each other in the comments of on your, you know, your personal page? Because we aren't all playing with the same rule books. And what some people would think of as acceptable, you might be like, actually, that's not, not acceptable in my space. We have to kind of learn to navigate those boundaries, how to create rules, how to be clear about the rules. And the fact that that clarity is kindness. It's not, it's not harsh or mean to be honest about your boundaries. You pivot from the first section of the book, which is a little bit more about dealing with the online presence mm-hmm. to the second section, which talks a little more about imposter syndrome and dealing with some of our own feelings about being content creators, it begs a kind of important question to me, how much of dealing with social media is kind of dealing with the outside versus how much of it is dealing with your own insecurities? So that's what makes the outside so difficult, is that that external criticism amplifies our internal critic. If we're criticized on something that that we take no issue with, if someone criticizes me like, oh, you're freakishly tall, I love being tall. <laughs> I've kind of wanted to be like two inches taller, like I'm a little <laughs> shorter than my preference. <laughs> so it's, it's totally like water off a duck's back. I don't care uh, because I don't have an issue with that. What gets really tricky is when that external criticism pushes on our own like self-consciousness, our own doubt, our own insecurities, it presses on a deep wound that we have. And this can be true online, but this is also true in our personal lives. The things we're most sensitive about are things that we feel a little, little insecure about. You know, I have clients that are retiring early or taking a year off and any internal doubt that they have about this, as soon as one of their friends say it, one of their family says it, like they have this really big reaction because they haven't internally really resolved that yet. So let's talk about some of the toxic personalities you meet online. I love the terms you've given to them, the CEO of the internet, (laughs) the dumbass, the troll, (laughs) and the apple cart people. Tell me about some of these characters. Let's start with the CEO of the internet. What's the deal with them? 
Oh, I love the CEO of the internet because if you spent like a minute online, you've met this person. They are the ones who are fully convinced that they're the boss of the internet, that they should just be CEO (laughs) and that like they get to make all the rules and everything has to like meet their standards and be up to their taste and reflect their own opinions. And if you do anything outside this little bubble that they define, they try to like fire you like you're their employee. (laughs) And it's just such a weird mentality, but you honestly see it in like every single niche, every single field. There's someone who's just decided that they're the boss. For me, I get a lot of the CEOs of spelling and grammar and and people will email me or comment like, you should not be allowed to write. If you can't spell, you can't be a writer. Like no one's going to take you seriously. Like you have to hire an editor. And I'm like, I have to hire an editor? Like this is my boss telling me his employee, we need to add an editor to your team. And I'm like, pretty sure this is my life and my business. And that's my choice. But thanks for pretending to be my boss. What are some of the good ways of dealing with the CEO of the internet so that they don't drive you crazy? I think it's just understanding that this is them. This is their personality. This is how they interact in the world. And I talk about a little bit later in the book, like why people become this way. And it's often because it works for them. They're like toddlers. They're working with a toddler skill set. Like toddlers, like they throw fits and they're angry and they have tantrums and they try to get their own way. But generally with decent parenting, uh, people (laughs) put boundaries around them and say, actually, this isn't like an acceptable way to communicate and to negotiate. And they learn better negotiation. They learn better communication. And some people never do. And it works. Like we tend to go with like the path of least resistance. And if this works in their life, you know, it works in their marriage, works with their kids, maybe works at their job. They just keep behaving this way. And that's not my problem. I am not their mom. I am not their boss. Like I don't have to deal with their lack of like poor emotional maturity. And so I can just be like, sorry, not sorry. Like, actually, you don't get a say. Thanks for the suggestion, but I didn't ask for suggestions. Like, yeah, there's just emotionally stunted people out there. And that can't be my job. I feel like the dumbasses and the trolls, we kind of intuitively know what they are and what to do about Mm -hmm. them. Tell me about the apple cart people. What are apple cart people? So apple cart people are like the least suspecting form of haters on the internet because they can be very decent people. But like we talked about this deep bruise, sometimes there is something in their personal life, something that's happened to them that's created this deep bruise. The thing with a deep bruise, I've ever had a bruise that like it healed on the surface Like you can't see it anymore. All the discoloration's gone. But if you know the exact point and you push on it really hard with your thumb, that person will howl out in pain because it's still there. 
And we're all humans. We've all lived life. Like we have these things that we carry around. And when you put something out there online, it mixes with that person's life. It mixes with their own story. It becomes kind of like a mythical, you know, Greek creature, like half one thing, half the other. And sometimes people have big reactions and it won't, it won't necessarily make any sense. Like it's, it could be anything that you share about your personal life can set someone off. And sometimes a whole group of people is really upset about something, which we've seen a lot online in the last two years. And you'll say one thing and a whole group of people, it's like, it's like they kicked over an apple cart and all of a sudden stuff is everywhere and it can, it can really escalate and break into like, it's like a farmer's market fist fight. Like a whole bunch of people get pulled in chaos ensues. Yeah. The, the term triggering comes to mind, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's usually someone gets triggered or a group of people become yep. triggered and it's this wave of reaction that starts small and gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we can, we can predict it, you know, we can, we can understand it, but especially when it comes to an individual, I had a situation where I did a guest post and admittedly like this guest post was overly flattering. Like I just, the way I strung this story together, I kind of looked superhuman at the end. And as soon as I started reading through the comments, I'm like, you're so amazing. You're a wonderful person. I was like, oh shoot. Like I should have balanced out this narrative because obviously I did not include enough of my flaws in this guest post. And then one comment started with, you're the worst human ever. I can't believe how selfish. And I just was like, wait, what? What's happening? Like, what's going on? And it took me, you know, you have to step back when you see something that's the outlier and go, what's, what, where's this coming from? And it was probably just something in her life. You know, this was a guest post about my life. And I, I highlighted a lot of different stories in my life. And it was tough because she had drawn some wrong conclusions and she had filled in details with, I'm imagining her story, not really my story. And I talk about it in the book, but you have to give yourself the gift of being misunderstood. Not everyone has to understand. Not everyone has to have all the information. Not everyone has to like come to the same conclusion that you do. And that's okay. It's okay for, for your work to reveal to someone that maybe they have a little bit more work to do. We're talking with Jillian Johnsrud, author of Fire the Haters, Finding the Courage to Create Online in a Critical World, which comes out October 12th. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is Earn and Invest. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Here on Earn and Invest, we often talk about fintech, but specifically, which apps do you use that makes your money easier? Well, I like to send people to Unify Money. Unify Money covers the whole gamut of our financial needs, including savings with high-yield savings accounts, spending, including credit cards, as well as investing. A core part of our long-term financial security and resilience is building an investment portfolio. The earlier we start, the better. And the less we lose in fees, the more money we will make in the long run. Unify Money helps you create a personalized investment portfolio effortlessly and gives you the option to trade actively across both traditional equities as well as stocks, funds, alternative assets, cryptocurrencies, gold, silver coins and bars, you name it. They even have fractional investments in precious metals. Everything you can think of, you can find it at Unify Money. Check them out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash unify. That's earnandinvest.com slash U-N-I-F-I. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Jillian Johnsrud, who is a writer, speaker, and coach. She is the creator of the Everyday Courage podcast. Jillian, in the second part of the book... You talk about imposter syndrome. Is imposter syndrome universal? Yes, if you're doing it right. I don't think everyone experiences it. If if you're a hobbyist, if you're never if you're never growing or pushing yourself or getting outside of your comfort zone, if you're never shipping something into the world, and saying, I made this and, and I am this person, you could go through your whole life and, and never experience it, never, never have to grapple with that, that kind of emotion and that mental challenge. And the bigger question is, what do we do with it once we know it's there? I view imposter syndrome as, as the outcome of doing the right thing. 
you're doing something right. You're, you're showing up, you're saying, Hey, I, I made this thing and I am this person. I made this cool birdhouse and like, I am a craftsperson, you know, I wrote this book and I am a writer and you're shipping it out there in a way that's vulnerable and courageous. And that's, what's triggering, oh, like these growing pains in you. And I kind of compare it to if you've never gone to the gym, if you've never exercised and you have no idea what to expect, you somehow like just have, have no idea of like what exercise happens and you get there and you, you start sweating and like, moisture starts coming out of your skin and you freak out and you go, oh my gosh, what, what's happening? Like, where is this coming from? This must be a sign. I'm doing something wrong. Like, this isn't normal. I should leave. I should never come back. Sweating is kind of like imposter syndrome. It means that you're doing exactly what you need to do to get where you want to go. And once you know that, like if you're at the gym and you start sweating a little bit, you go, I'm on the right track. Like I'm, I'm doing something good here. Uh, I should keep going because I'm making progress and just internalizing and kind of flipping the narrative of what that emotion of imposter syndrome is it's, it's you're being brave and courageous and and you're growing as a person which is all fantastic stuff so i think if people just kind of rewired what that means and how to interpret that that feeling and emotion and it's kind of like i talk about you don't have to be the most experty expert to show up and to work and to try and to get better you don't get a start at the top of anything so yeah, you're shipping work and you're trying things and you're going to learn and you're going to, you're going to fail and, and your skill probably won't match your tastes, like not right away. And all of that's just part of the process. And the more we can kind of shift our narrative uh, and our internal expectations, the less kind of mental, mental torture we put ourselves through. It's an interesting question of when we can define ourselves as that expert, right? So we're in the process of writing a book. Does that mean we're a writer? We have a blog or teach a course on personal finance. Does that mean we're a personal finance expert? The lines become blurred and it's certainly, there's a lot of internal growth there, not necessarily external that eventually helps you define yourself in such a way. And I think the term expert generally isn't helpful for us as individuals ever. But in the last part of the book, I talk about like, we can use our actions to tether our identity. So if you're teaching, you're a teacher. If you're writing, you're a writer. If you're speaking, you're a speaker. You know, if you're providing a service, you are the person doing that service. And even if, your outcomes aren't great. You know, you're not the best. You're not the top of the pile. It's mediocre. You're figuring it out. If you're doing the thing, you are that person doing the thing. And it's, I think, especially in American culture, and I'm such a perfectionist, it's becoming more comfortable with growing and learning and leaning into progress instead of aiming for perfection. You mentioned a few moments ago kind of the difference between taste and skill. How does that play into the imposter syndrome and what we're talking about right now? It's so difficult. You know, Ira Glass has this quote about 
the fact that we go into things because we have good taste. But the reality is, and this is whether you're a musician, you're a politician, like you're a cake maker, you go into it because you have good taste, but your skill doesn't match your taste just yet. Like that's just not the way it works. I think about it like dry stacking uh, a stone wall. You kind of just have to start at the bottom. And with every attempt, with every stone you stack, it falls short of where you want the top of the wall to be until the very last one, like 50 rocks up. It's one more attempt that falls short and it's one more attempt that falls short. And I think the people who get to the top of the wall and are able to stack that last stone are the people who develop a comfort and, and a way to, to mentally process this producing work that isn't your best, that doesn't quite match your taste yet. Like if you can move through that dysregulation and that discomfort and just say, okay, I'm aiming for progress, not perfection. Like, am I making progress? Am I getting better? Awesome. I'm doing what I need to be doing. I need to just keep doing it. I know you and I have shared this thought process with podcasting, right? Because both of us went into the podcasting world, listening to some of the greatest podcasts out there. So we developed this wonderfully great taste in podcasting, yet lo and behold, when you sit in front of a microphone, your skills are not necessarily in league with the taste you've developed. It can be disconcerting in the beginning. (laughs) It's really uncomfortable. And I think we need to talk more about the fact that that's... That's the price of admission. That's what you're going to go through to get where you want to go. And we don't, I don't think we talk enough about that. It's just, it's really uncomfortable and it's a bummer. And like, you'll feel, you'll feel frustrated. And like, all of those are good, acceptable emotions. Like if that's what you're feeling, fantastic. Because that means that you're not a hobbyist. You're showing up as a professional. You're shipping your work. You care about your work. You care about the quality. It matters to you. And that's why you're feeling all these emotions. So you're doing exactly what you need to do to get to where you want to go. Instead of, I had a, a new podcaster, uh, very successful in other mediums, brand new to podcasting, come and say, how can I make my podcast just fantastic from the get-go? And I'm like, you can't <laughs> um, because you're not fantastic from the get-go. Like, where does that happen in life? The very first attempt is our best attempt. <laughs> like, no, we we get better by doing. And, and that's another important lesson from the book is that your confidence and your clarity come in doing. Like we don't start with that. We earn that skill and that confidence and that clarity by continuing to show up. As you talk about the doing, it brings up another trap. I think a lot of us with good taste fall into is we tend to over-prepare. Tell me a little bit about the difference between good preparation versus procrastination. Because I know when it comes to social media and creation, and especially worrying about the blowback, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to fall into that trap of not knowing the difference. 
I've seen people prepare and wait for the right time and work behind the scenes all in this attempt for perfection. And they're not actually making progress. All of this preparation is just a form of procrastination. Like at some point you need to ship the work and you probably need to ship it earlier than you feel ready. You need to ship it when you're in that like uncomfortable, frustrated, like if you're still in that emotional state, fantastic, because it's the only way you're going to get better. And if you don't start shipping it and you don't start getting, yeah, sometimes the feedback stinks, but sometimes it's good. Like sometimes it's helpful feedback, but just the act of shipping and getting better. The other thing is, and I wish we talked about this more too, it's good to start at the bottom. It's good to start when nobody's paying attention. It's good to start when like nobody cares what you're doing. You know, you'll put something out there and people will be all tied in knots. What are people going to say? What are they going to do? Like, what if everyone finds out and you ship it out there and it turns out like no one actually cares uh, and it's not that big of a deal because nobody's super interested (laughs) in whatever you care about. (laughs) You care a hundred percent. They care 1%, but that's a good thing. It's a good place to start because you get to hone your craft. You get to hone this process when no one's paying attention. Like if you want to be like a super famous, like pizza maker, it's better to start when you're just making pizza for your friends. And then you're making pizza at a food truck. Then you're making pizza at like one little shop in your hometown before you try to like franchise out a hundred locations. Yeah. I remember having this similar conversation with Rich Jones and Marcus Garrett uh, when they worked together on paychecks and balances And we were talking about recognition and something Marcus said always stuck with me. He's like, it's a good thing we didn't get recognition in the beginning because he's like, we hadn't built it yet. Yeah, He's like, we weren't ready for recognition. And I I, I hear echoes of that and what you're saying is Mm -hmm. sometimes it's nice to be able to start small because you haven't yet built the depth of content or ideas Mm -hmm. or platform necessary to actually deal with the onslaught that may one day come. And we have to learn, it's a learning curve to create kind of those emotional boundaries with your audience and like actual boundaries around your time and your energy. I once heard, I'll misquote it. I don't remember what author, but it was an author who said, I think it was the one that wrote the one thing or essentialism. Don't quote me there. But he said, the reason most authors don't write second books It's because after the first book does well, there's too many opportunities for distraction. Hmm. If you have one book that does well, like so many things pour into your life that you never get around to writing your next book. And so not having all of those opportunities for distraction is a fantastic place to start creating, to start trying, uh, to explore new things, to experiment, to figure out your style and and what you're going to offer. It's also a good time to create some of those safeguards around mm-hmm. your content to start learning how to protect yourself, right? Because I know in the book you talk about for instance, having other people sift through your comments so mm-hmm. that you don't see kind of the worst of the worst. It's easier to do that at the beginning of your journey, isn't it? 
you have to develop some of those systems and those processes. And it's, it's better to do that while you're growing because there are growing pains and everyone, you know, people we know if they grew really fast in a short period of time in like less than a year, it's, there's a little bit of pain in just that enormous learning curve of figuring all of this out really, really quickly. So I want to pivot to the third section of your book. You talk about cancel culture, and I figure, feel that's a term that we didn't even have a few years ago. Mm-hmm. How big a role is that playing in the fears of online creators today? It's an enormous fear. One, no one's super excited to have a whole bunch of people angry with you, but we can also see other you know, with the internet, we have like wider vision. So we can see what's happening with people all around the world. And we can hear about situations that 30 years ago never would have made it on our radar. And all of a sudden we become hyper aware of of these things that are happening. And some of them are scary and some of them are bad. And so while it's generally not an actual concern, like it's probably not something that you'll encounter in a significant way. It It's still a big concern. It's still a big fear that can hold us back from, from really getting started or from going bigger. We're talking to Jillian Johns Rude, author of Fire the Haters, Finding Courage to Create Online in a Critical World. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. If you're part of the Earn and Invest community and want a place where you can go online and avoid the haters, the best place to go is our Facebook group. That's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. There we continue the discussions that start every Monday and Thursday on the Earn and Invest podcast. We talk about personal finance, the economy, current events, you name it. We discuss it there. Check us out earnandinvest.com slash Facebook and become part of our community. Jillian Johnsrud is the creator of the Everyday Courage podcast, and we are talking about her book, Fire the Haters. So we are talking about when it kind of hits the fan, cancel culture, even though it's not common, it's still something that some of us have to face what do we do when the whole internet seems mad at us? Well, there's a few different levels. And I think one of the issues with cancel culture is that it's a term we use very broadly, but it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There is the reality that like, you can say something like I made this tweet about a choice I made in my life. We did a cash out refi and half of my retweets, like I mentioned, people were angry. And they were upset. Is that cancel culture? No, they just don't like what I did. And it's okay. Not everyone has to like what you do. Not everyone will like what you do. People have lots of different reactions to your work. And that is 100% fine. Then there's this level of like, sometimes we mess up. and We make a mistake. And people in our audience are upset with us. 
And that's a hundred percent going to happen because we're humans and we make mistakes. And is that cancel culture for people in our audience to be like, yo, you screwed up there? No, not really. Because we make mistakes and people should be upset when we make mistakes. And so we just have to learn how to how to make amends and how to apologize and how to be honest and and how to do better in the future. And then there's a level of you make a mistake and a whole bunch of people who aren't in your audience decide that they all want to come to just be mean to you. That's just bullying and harassing. And like, they're not your fans. They're not your customers. They never would have been. And I'm kind of like, we'll just let it blow over. Like, these aren't my people. They're just here to like, I don't know, play dress up like angry villager for the weekend. And then they'll go on to their next day. (laughs) But that's like the culture we live in. Still not super fun, but not really your problem either. I think true cancel culture is when the angry mob shows up and tries to convince your audience to disengage with you. I put in a quote by Ricky Gervais, you know, it's not cancel culture to change the television channel, but it kind of is when you're trying to convince someone else to change their television channel. I have an optimistic view that like people who are going to understand will, people who want to support you will, if you're creating something of value, if you're putting something out there, if there's demand for what you have to offer, from books to pizza to uh, custom birdhouses in in the free market, like with the internet, you'll find your people and they'll find you. And if if you are concerned that that isn't the case, think of someone you really dislike in the public eye and the fact that they're still there. Like we can't get rid of them. Like, I know I know a few of those. Not yeah. been canceled. Like is there a button we have to push? I don't know. Like could we take a vote that they just have to disappear from the internet? I would love to. And yet they persist. So if you're putting something out there that resonates with people, I think it'll persist. Are there some straightforward do's and don'ts when you're stuck in that situation where you do feel like either you let your people down or you let your people down and now the greater community is is trying mm-hmm. to cancel you? Are there some basic things you can do? I think taking a break, honestly, it feels like a hurricane. And, and, and I think the impulse is when there's this, this kind of farmer's market fist fight happening is to engage. But I use an example in the book. I spent a lot of time in honky tonk bars when I was a teenager. (laughs) So I'm very familiar with honky tonk bar culture. If a fist fight breaks out, uh, the bartender cannot get involved in the fight. Nothing good happens after the bartender is in the fight. They got to like shut off the lights. They got to kick out the offending people. Like, but they have to stay somewhat separate from the fray. And the worst thing you can do is jumping into the fight, defending yourself, attacking other people, you know, just engaging in the mess. So if you need to step back and take a break from the internet, log out of Facebook, you know, don't look in your comments for a couple hours for a day, that's better than jumping in the fray and starting to throw punches. 
But I think the people who do it well are the ones that if they've made a mistake, acknowledge it, describe how they're going to fix it, commit to the process and do better. And it's so refreshing in our culture to see someone say, wow, I really messed up. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mean to, that wasn't my intention, but I did. And, and here's what I'm going to do to, to try to reconcile that, that there, again, people who want to be your fans will stay your fans. People who want to be our customers will stay your customers. And, you know, the village mob will eventually move on because there's always, there's always like, I don't know, new, new village to torment, new, new issues to be upset about. You mentioned this idea of over-communicating and sometimes Mm -hmm. that is actually very helpful. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I got that advice from the editor of Entrepreneur Magazine and he mentioned specifically, I'm sure you remember the issue with the, was it Robin Hood? The Robin Hood app during where they shut down trading. It was like a crazy situation they ended up shutting down trading, but they didn't communicate anything, not to the media, not to their customers, not to their investors. Like they kind of went silent and all of the communication was the media speculating on what they think is happening inside this company. And it's advice he had gotten in, in that like all communication should be driven from you. And try to over-communicate, especially if you have a team, especially if you have employees, like at least internally, kind of lead that conversation. So looking from the 10,000-foot view, this is complicated. I mean, do you ever kind of throw your hands up in the air and want to completely walk away? And if so, how do you kind of back off the ledge? Yes, every month, <laughs> every month. And, and I quit. And I get a good night's sleep. And then I come back the next day because especially if you're a creator and you're an entrepreneur, like it's a lot, it's a lot of moving pieces and you'll not just mess it up externally, but like internally you'll mess things up. You'll overbook yourself. You'll overextend, like you'll disappoint your, your staff or something. And I think giving yourself permission to, to rest and to take a break and to have other hobbies and then to come back and say, okay, I learned something. Like I learned something about myself and you make the thing, you make the rules, you make your schedule, (laughs) you, you determine how your energy and your time is used and now it's up to you to reject that and just to cl- clearly communicate it. And of course, we're living in the midst of a pandemic. Do you think it's accelerated some of this online behavior that we're kind of fighting with? Online and in person, it's accelerated it because you know, we only have so much mental and emotional bandwidth. And for a lot of people, a lot of that's been used up. And so we're just not running on a lot of margin. We don't have a lot of grace. We don't have a lot of time to consider empathetically what a person might have meant or why they might have made that mistake. And it's just the the agitation level is higher. And I think, especially in America, people are really agitated with each other, like just general agitation that for things that are happening. 
And so I think it it has accelerated just people's frustration and their agitation online and and people are quicker to become the CEO of the internet and like I can't control what's happening over here in my life but like I can make sure you don't talk about this or I can make sure like to police your tone of voice or to criticize you for your appearance or something just as an outlet of of control and frustration what this conversation helps remind me especially is that in a sense I think we all are our own brands whether we like it or yeah. not and how we present ourselves not only on the internet but out in the world today now is open for comment and dealing with those comments sometimes is difficult fire the haters finding courage to create online in a critical world is a guide to dealing with the world and how they comment on us. Jillian, tell us if we are interested in buying the book, is it available everywhere? Everywhere. Yep. And if we want to find you online or have comments, nice ones, I hope, how can people get Only in touch nice with you? nice ones. <laughs> <laughs> yep. At Jillian Johns Road, my website's.com, but that's what I'm on on Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. At Jillian Johns Road. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jillian Johnsrud. That's a wrap. Cool. So is there anything we didn't cover that you really wanted to talk about? Any parts of the book or anything you were like, wow, we really missed this part and I'd like it to be involved? Mm. No. Um, no, I'm sure it's fine. There's so many things. I really dug the book. I really felt like it addresses so many things that we're going through today. And I don't think up to this point, there has been a really good manual about saying, okay, this is our realities and we can bitch as much as we want about the realities, but we're not going to get rid of online commenting. We're not going to get rid of even nowadays in-person commenting. Um, no. So this is, is the first rational <laughs> response I've really seen kind of written about. And yeah. I've I found great value in that because i um, yeah, I think we're all kind of thrashing in the dark on some of this and we don't know what to do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited in that like every creative, every entrepreneur, like we all talk about this. Like we all try to collectively figure it out. We all try to see what other people are doing or how they handle things. Um, but there wasn't anything that just kind of brought together that collective wisdom um, and I'm excited. I'm hoping. So one of my secret hopes is that like, it would be a highly recommended book, you know, like someone reads it and then over the next two or three years, whenever like they see, they, they have those conversations like, oh, I'm really struggling with this. They go, oh, I know what book you need. Like yeah. this one, it covers all of it. Like that concern, this other concern you mentioned, all of them, it's right here. Um, so I'm hoping for kind of that long tail because it's, there isn't really another resource out there that like deals with all of these components um, in one, yeah, one spot. So tell me dealing with you dealing personally, you're now used to people commenting on 
blog posts, social media posts, mm-hmm. what have you on your podcast, people's reaction to your book is going to be yet a new thing of dealing with, with how people comment on it. What do you think is going to happen? Or are you kind of mentally preparing yourself for it feeling a little different when it comes to your book, which granted a book is a lot more of you than Mm -hmm. like a quick blog post or social media post. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, (laughs) I am nervous. Um, partly because, it's honestly a very tricky thing for creatives and entrepreneurs to talk about these topics online. Like it's so, it's such a delicate thing that can turn into sounding like ungrateful or critical or entitled. Like a lot of creatives have gotten a lot of blowback from just mentioning the fact that like, this is a tricky thing to figure out. Like celebrities get blowback if they mention like how they struggle to like with fan interactions. Like it's, it, it triggers the audience in a like, well, you whiny and grateful twerp, like we're here supporting you. And now you're just going to complain about us. (laughs) So like, I've seen, I've seen, you know, Tim Ferriss has written about it. James Clear, like people do occasionally. But I know that behind the scenes, they're having way more conversations, Yeah, yeah but totally. it's just not publicly acceptable to like harpoon the people who made you successful. Right, right. And that's often what it's perceived to be. So like that nature of it, I'm like, oh, I, I hoped, I, and that's kind of why I wanted to create like characters of, of these haters. So it's not... So people could read it and go, well, I'm not that person. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm not a troll. Like, I'm not a dumbass. Like, <laughs> I'm not behaving badly. She's not talking about, she's not criticizing me. <laughs> but it will be interesting. And Amazon reviews, especially once it gets outside of my audience. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'll read them. Like, I'll probably read the ones that I know are like from my audience. Uh and then I might, like Seth Godin says, he never reads his Amazon reviews because he says his goal is to write another book and he's finished with that book and he's never going to write that book again. So why would he do something that he, he's not going to redo and wouldn't help him do the next thing? Yeah, it's the difference between criticism and constructive criticism, right? So criticism is one thing. The question is how constructive is criticism? And it's it's hard to know, especially especially anonymous criticism, right? So you get your Amazon book review and you're getting lots of reviews from people you don't know. You don't know if they're experts in your field or they're just someone who read the book. How, how important is that criticism? I, I think it's a very difficult question to answer. Well, and even criticism that's fair isn't universal. Yeah. So like writing style, um, you know, there's, you look at like um, the, how to be a badass books, her writing style is very casual is very like sentence fragments. And like every sentence starts with a preposition. And I'm sure she has reviews that say, this is trash. Like, why didn't she get an editor? Like, It's so painful to read. And yet that's also why like 80% of the people love her book. Yeah. So I, I would probably have my developmental editor go through the reviews 
and see if they could pick out one or two gems of like that might actually be useful. But even if it's valid, it might not be helpful. Yeah. You know, like, like swearing in a book. Some people will love it and some people will hate it. And yeah, at some you point you just have to mm-hmm. decide you're not for everyone and just kind of show up as yourself. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.